You can inspire your partner. You can encourage your partner. You can trigger your partner. And I'll promise you, by the end of us doing what we're going to be doing here, you will inspire your partner to behave and think and feel in different ways. But never think you can control them. You have enough trouble controlling yourself. Okay, I thought it's a really good addition to our series Relationship Reality Check. I had an opportunity to sit down with Dr. Justin Laymiller. He's PhD, and he has written a great book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. And everybody wants to improve their sex life. I don't care how good it is, right? I mean, everybody wants to do that. I would agree with you. So how did you get into this particular arena? So this book is an exploration into the science of sexual fantasies and desires, and that's something that's been of interest to me for a long time. I spent 10 years as a college sex educator teaching human sexuality courses to college students around the country, and I just found that the great equalizer among all students, whether they're in the Ivy League or uh, at a you know big public institution, is that nobody knows any more about sex than anyone else. And right. so I wanted to you know kind of take that uh, approach and provide it to a larger audience. Yeah, we always say that America, compared to the rest of the world, is kind of puritanical. Is that really true? Absolutely. Really? <laughs> it, it, it's funny that we we live in a culture where sex is all around us. We see it everywhere in the media. We see it in advertising. And, and people from the outside in look at us and think that we're a pretty sexual and open culture. But when you start looking at the way people actually talk about sex, you see that we're very repressed. And we have that puritanical baggage and history that's still dragging on us in a lot of ways. I'm not in practice anymore. I was in practice for, I don't know, 12, 15 years. And it's been a long time since I did it. But then when I did, even in the privacy of the therapist room where everything was supposedly protected and people could be frank and honest, people would still get red-faced, dig their toe in the carpet, not want to make eye contact when it came to talking about sex. And if you started talking to them about sexual fantasies, role-playing, any kind of expressing what they were thinking about but not giving a voice, it was like, oh my God. I mean, sometimes you'd bring it up and never see them again. Right. They would just never come back. They were just too embarrassed. Why is that in this country? Because it's not that way in France. It's not that way in most of Europe, which is where I've spent a fair amount of time. Why are we that way? What you're saying reminds me of a point that I make in the book, which is that people find it easier to have sex than to talk about sex. Oh, absolutely. And that <laughs> yeah. is, is such a big problem. And I think there are lots of fingers that we could point to and, and blame. And, you know, we can look at the, the history of, of, of the culture in this country. But uh, actually, I think the mental health community has done a lot in terms of stigmatizing a lot of sexual interests that people have. Uh, for example, that term paraphilia, which means an mm -hmm. unusual sexual interest. We have labeled many, many different desires as paraphilic over the years, which makes people think that there's something wrong with them. Yeah, right? right. If it's unusual, people feel like it's a disorder or a problem. And it turns out that a lot of the things that we've labeled as paraphilias are actually pretty normal sexual interests. That's one of the things I look at in the book is it's based on the largest survey of sexual fantasies ever conducted in the United States. And one of the things I find, for example, that we've long thought was rare that's really common is interest in BDSM and power play when it comes to sex. Very common. Yeah. 
Well, you talk in the book about the seven most common fantasies in America. Talk about what some of those are and how common they really are. Sure. So the first of these is multi-partner sex, which means threesomes, foursomes, or moresomes. And what I found was that more than 90% of men and women of all orientations and backgrounds reported fantasizing about this at some point. Uh, the, the BDSM power and control fantasies were also extraordinarily common, you know, high 80s, low 90% uh, of people fantasizing about it. Uh, some of the other really common fantasies are the novelty and adventure fantasies where people are taking sex out of their own bed and their own bedroom and just mixing it up and doing something different. Then and when you say something different, are you talking about different places in the home or out in public or what is the fantasy? So public sex is actually one of the really big ones. It, right. It's not that people actually want to have sex in public and be seen. They just want that risk or potential thrill of, right. uh, you know, being caught. How much do they act on that fantasy? <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot. So a couple of statistics for you. Uh, when I asked people about their favorite fantasy of all time, 80% of them said that they want to act on that fantasy in the future, which means it's a desire for them. However, only one in five people said that they've ever actually done that before. So there are, there's this very big gap between fantasy and reality. What are some of the others? Some of the other common fantasy themes are the taboo fantasies. Uh, we know that when people are told they can't or shouldn't do something, that makes them come to want to do it even more. Mm -hmm. So that's where a lot of the fetish sorts of fantasies come in. Right. Then there's the passion and romance fantasies where people are meeting some emotional need, whether it's connecting with a partner or feeling desired or wanted. Then there are the non-monogamy fantasies where people are thinking about what it would be like to be polyamorous or in an open relationship. And, and then lastly, there's sort of the, the gender bending and homoeroticism fantasies where people are sort of pushing the boundaries of their gender role or sexual orientation in some way. You know, I've had people come on and talk a lot about open marriages. Mm -hmm. I have yet to find one that didn't wind up as a train wreck. Have you ever run across a formula that works in an open marriage? So it can work. And really? I got to hear this. <laughs> so I've actually done a bit of research in uh, the last few years on people who are in different types of open relationships. And really what we see is that people in these relationships can be just as happy uh, as, as couples who are monogamous, um, but they aren't always. And I think the really key factor is that a lot of people try to open their marriage as a way of fixing a broken marriage. And that usually never works out well. So the relationship really has to be in a good place first. You have to approach this from a position of strength and there has to be fantastic communication between the partners and they have to be on the same page about what they want and clearly establish the rules and then also recognize that, you know, things might not go exactly according to plan. Maybe we're going to deal with issues like jealousy and so forth and we have to be willing to communicate openly about them to work through that. So my formula for a healthy relationship is if you're going to have a good marriage or just committed relationship that has to be based on a solid underlying friendship. And then it's a function of how well it meets the needs of the two people involved. So if you and I are in a relationship, it doesn't matter whether it's friends or marriage or whatever. If we're in a relationship and my needs are getting met at a level of 85% and yours are getting met at a level of 10%, then my experience of the relationship is going to be really good and yours is going to be really bad. Mm -hmm. But if both of us are having our needs met, and then I say, you've got two jobs. 
One is to really work actively to learn your partner's needs. And two is to teach actively your partner what your needs are. Then you've got two people working towards each other. I'm working towards you to try and learn your needs and teach you mine. And you're working towards me trying to learn my needs and teach me yours. Then you've got two people working towards each other, learning and teaching each other what their needs are. Then that's the formula for a good relationship. Does that Mm -hmm. make sense? Absolutely makes sense to me. And if that's happening, then needs are being met. Then you would ask yourself, then why would you open a relationship and bring in an interloper? And you're right, because when something's wrong, I've said you're never going to fix a relationship by turning away from your partner. But you're saying if everything's working well, that's when you see it work. It's when it can work. And this is where I think we need to get into the personalities of the individual partners. Open relationships, polyamory, this is not right for everyone. For lots of people, monogamy is great, works out really well. Uh, One thing that I often point to as a personality factor that matters is what's called your sociosexual orientation, which is basically the degree to which you see sex and emotion is going together. Some people see them as very much intertwined. For other people, they're separable. And for the people who see those things as different, they are potential candidates for some type of open relationship or marriage because they're less likely to have all of the extra emotional tanglements and complications that are going to arise from bringing a third person or other person in. So you're saying they don't look at emotion and sex as being intertwined, going hand in hand. They're more likely to be able to successfully have an open marriage. Yes. Yeah. I've always wondered how you bring that up. Not that I want to bring it up, in case Robin's listening. I want to make it very clear. But I've always wondered how you bring that up around the table. Because I can tell you at my house, that would get a black eye. Mm -hmm. If you're sitting around the breakfast table and you say, by the way, what would you think about, I don't know, having sex with other people? I don't think I would get from the E at the end of people (laughs) to the period at the end of the sentence without getting punched in the face. How do you bring that up? I don't know how that would work. So that's actually a big part of the book is talking about how do you have these difficult conversations with a partner about your sexual fantasies and desires and you don't want to do it at the breakfast table no. like when you're catching your partner in a you know sort of very uh you know not sexual uh kind of state so i talk a lot about how you got to pick the right time and setting to have these conversations ideally you're both uh, you know, kind of in the mood to talk about sex. You've just watched a steamy movie together, for example. It's it's finding the right icebreaker to have the conversation and then starting low and going very slow. You don't need to get all your adventuresome fantasies out there right away. It's start with the more vanilla side and work up to it as you've built trust and intimacy and communication. Yeah. I don't know. (laughs) I guess we have sex and emotion intertwined at our house because that just wouldn't play. And hey, this is one of these things where there's no right answer. Different things work for different people. And it's just finding what best meets the needs of the partners. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. Talk about this. Correct me if I am saying this in a way that doesn't comport with what the research says, because I want people to hear what's empirically supported. Mm -hmm. This is just a way I express it, so it's not something that's research-based. But people have asked me how important sex is to a relationship. I've always said, if you've got a good sexual relationship, it's about 10%. And if you don't, it's about 90%. And I say that because if you have a good sexual relationship, then you enjoy it, you're relaxed, you feel comfortable, accepted, secure, validated, desired, all the things that come along with that. And if you don't, then you feel rejection. You don't feel validated. You don't feel desired. And you can't get past that. And the reason I say it's 10% if you have it is because, okay, you've got it. Now you can move on to everything else. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have it, you can't get on to communication. You can't get on to shared experiences because you've got a chip on your shoulder all the time because you're feeling rejected. Does that make sense? Yeah. And that's one of these things about, you know, what, what is a good sex life and how do you and your partner get on the same page about it? And I think this is one of these things where we need to go into relationships realistically and saying, you know, you can establish sexual compatibility up front, but that doesn't mean you're going to be compatible over the entire course of your lives, things are going to change. Sexual desire discrepancies where one partner wants more or different sex than the other are the you know, biggest reason people seek sex and relationship therapy. And it's because we encounter life stressors and uh, hormonal changes over the course of time that affect our sexual desire. And so we have to understand that we need to continually check in with our partners over time to make sure we're getting those needs met. We also need to not make problematic comparisons to other people's sex lives because i think a lot of people feel insufficient like they're not having enough sex because they see people in the movies and tv or they think their neighbors are doing it all the time and when people get so obsessed on quantity of sex that's where we start to see problems focus more on quality and making sure you're having the best sex not the most sex is there an average where people with anonymity tell the truth <laughs> instead of being macho about it is there an average for different age groups or different lengths of marriage? And if so, what are they? The sort of overall average is about once a week. Uh -huh. And there, there's some interesting research looking at how sexual frequency is related to our happiness. And what we see is that sex and happiness both increase up until once per week. But having sex more than once per week doesn't make people any happier. Really, And I think that's a really interesting and worthwhile point to kind of hammer home that more sex won't necessarily make you happier. And, you know, there's some books out there that challenge people to have sex every day. That's not, not necessarily a good way to go because then sex starts to become this chore, something people feel like they have to do instead of something they want to do. Yeah. I've had couples that are trying to have children 
So they're having sex when she's ovulating based on her body temperature and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And it becomes a chore. They really lose interest because it becomes a chore. Right. It's no longer spontaneous. It's no longer sexy, fun. It's a job. And sometimes they never recover from it because it loses all of its spontaneity and sizzle. But once a week, if they've been married five years, 10 years, 25 years, Yeah, so this definitely changes over time. What we see is that sexual frequency increases over the first year of a relationship, and then it tends to decrease after that. So in younger couples, you'll see sex more often than once a week. In older couples, it'll be less often. Less often doesn't necessarily mean they're less satisfied, though, because what makes sex satisfying changes as we age. And people place more emphasis on the connection with the partner. And uh, it it becomes less about, uh, you know, the orgasm and, you know, physical gratification. Realistically, what percentage of the time do men and women have orgasms? So this is something called the the orgasm gap, right? Because we know that men have orgasms on average more often than women. For men, it's it's in the 90 some percent, usually around 95 percent is the stat I see in most studies Uh, for women. It depends on what kind of relationship it is. So if it's a a marital relationship, I want to say it's in sort of the two thirds Uh, you know, about 66% of women report consistently having orgasms. If you're talking about in dating relationships or casual relationships, the numbers are even lower uh, than that. You know, for example, with a one-time hookup, the odds of a woman having an orgasm, you know, for like a college-age woman is about one in three. So it's much lower. Is that because of anxiety? I think there's this big part of partner-specific learning. And so what we see is that the more sexual experience that uh, a heterosexual woman has with a male partner, the more her odds of orgasm go up. Um, uh, Another part of it is that, you know, sort of in the hookup culture, you know, there's sort of this prioritization of male over female pleasure. And so when you get into a a relationship where there's more equality, then there's more emphasis placed on female pleasure. How important is it for partners to talk to each other about what they like and don't like, what works for them and doesn't work for them? That's probably a obvious question in communication is always good. But sometimes I've encountered couples that have been together for 20 years and have never had a conversation about, I really don't like it when you do that, or I really like it when you do this. They've been together 20 years, so they've probably had sex at least 50 times a year. You're talking about a lot of encounters and yet have never one time given each other any direction, suggestion, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Is there a right way and a wrong way to do that where it doesn't come across as criticism? And how important is it? It's very important. This is something I talk a lot about in the book is I find that the people who are communicating about their fantasies with their partners and those who are going the extra step and acting on their fantasies report the highest levels of sexual satisfaction, the highest relationship satisfaction, the fewest sexual difficulties and problems. On average, those people are thriving when they have that open communication. So it is really important. It doesn't mean that you have to act on every fantasy that you have. Right? That's a totally individual decision that, that's up to you and your partner and whether that's right for you. But For the couples where there is that communication, they're doing really well. And in terms of how you have that conversation, the framing issue is absolutely essential. You can't bring it up as criticism. And one of the things I talk about a lot is when you share fantasies with a partner, you want to validate your partner in the process. 
Talk about how your partner plays an integral role in your fantasies and how you find them very sexy and attractive to begin with. And, you know, this is a way of just augmenting your sex life for both of you. It's not about you and it's not about replacing your partner. It's about having this shared experience together. Yeah, I've got a book that's on the table when you go into our master suite. And the saying has probably been written on everything you write on. It says, love sees not with the eyes. I've had this theory. It's kind of like watching a puppy. You know, you get a puppy and you don't notice it growing. Mm -hmm. And then somebody that hasn't seen it for six weeks comes in and says, my God, where, where did you get that monster? I've had this theory that when you're with someone every day, you don't notice them aging. Is that true? Yeah, there is truth to that. And you also don't notice how necessarily how their sexual needs and desires are changing either because these are constantly evolving over the course of our lives something i looked at in the book is how our sexual fantasies change as we age and what i see is that as people get older especially as they enter their 40s and 50s their fantasies become much more adventuresome than they were when they were in their 20s really? and earlier really you know, we, we tend to think of college students as you know the hypersexual ones who are having all the threesomes and all you know it's people in their 40s and 50s who are really? the most adventuresome and so for the couples who aren't checking in with each other, you might not realize how, you know, sort of kinky your partner has become because you've never had those conversations. <laughs> you haven't asked. No. Yeah. And that's why you don't want to delay the conversation forever. Just in terms of age, how long do people stay sexually active in this day and time? 60s, 70s, 80s? You see that in the data is that sexuality is lifelong. Yes, it decreases over time. People are less likely to have sex in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. But um, most people at, at midlife and, uh, you know, in their 60s are still sexually active. Uh, it starts to drop off a bit more in 70s and beyond. But I think part of that is attributable to the fact that we just don't tend to see seniors as sexual beings. And right. that's a that's a problem, right? Sexuality becomes this very stigmatized thing and no one wants to talk about it. But these sexual desires are still there. And I think we need to have a lot more discussions about uh, senior sexuality. I've read about this. It's been a long time since I have. But the latency between sexual satisfaction for the male versus the female, it seems like the last time I looked at the research for men, it was like four or five minutes. And for women, it was like 15 or 20, something like that. Is that still hold true? Based on the most recent data I've seen, yes. You know, they've done studies where they give men stopwatches, <laughs> you know, ask them to record, you know, from penetration to orgasm, how long that takes. On average, it's five minutes. Uh, for women, it's it's definitely in that sort of 15 minute mark. And so there's that big, you know, sort of gap there. And we need to think about ways of how do we address that to ensure that everyone's getting their needs met. Yeah. So suggestions. Hmm? I mean, how... Do you fill that gap and do you fill the gap between him and her or do you fill that gap before ahead of time? I mean, I suppose that's where foreplay comes in. So you both get there at about the same time or do you fill the gap between him and her? Is there a best way to do that? What's the research say? So this is where it's going to take some experimentation on your part to figure out what works best for you and your partner. There's never a, you know, sort of one size fits all answer. So one approach is to 
add more foreplay and incorporate more sexual activities in, into the mix. What we see is that the more different activities people engage in during a sexual encounter, the greater their odds of orgasm. So, so mixing it up, doing different things is really key. Um, also, not looking at the male orgasm is a sign that sex is over, right? There are still things you can do afterwards, other activities. You could incorporate or experiment with sex toys, you know, all kinds of ways you could go to prolong the encounter beyond the male orgasm. And then there are also different sexual positions you can try. Uh, one that I uh, talk about a lot on my blog is the it's called the coital alignment technique. It's sort of a different way of having sex where the base of the male partner's penis stays in constant contact with the clitoris. And so what we see is that that position increases the odds of simultaneous orgasm. And so if you can, you know, sort of take that approach, then that works for some people. Right. Survey-wise, what's the percentage of couples or if it's different for men or women that are comfortable with using like vibrators or other types of sex toys? Where's the breakdown in acceptability between men and women? So it's interesting when you look at research from nationally representative samples, most men and women have tried sex toys before, but it's something that no one really talks about, right? It, it's something that uh, in, in my book, I I surveyed people about, you know, fantasies about sex toys. Most people have had those at some point, and we see that most people are trying them at some point, but people aren't talking about it. So I think that there is the openness there, but you're not going to know it unless you're communicating with your partner. Yeah. Are men threatened by the use of a vibrator or something like that? Some are, and if they are, they shouldn't be uh, because, you know, you shouldn't be threatened that a piece of machinery is going to take your place. You know, uh, sex is about so much more than just a mechanical act. It's, it's the connection you have with your partner and all these other things that go into it that make it satisfying and, and, and the relationship, you know, you're, you're not going to have a relationship with your sex toy. Yeah. A vibrator can't keep your feet warm no. <laughs> at night. <laughs> Can't snuggle up with a vibrator. Nope. No doubt about it. The book we're talking about, if you're getting into this conversation midway for some reason, is Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. This is part of the Relationship Reality Check series I'm doing, which I subtitled, How Much Fun Are You to Live With? <laughs> and one of the things I've done is talk about some myths that I wanted to blow up. And I talked about romance and I talk about sex, whether sex is important, whether romance is important. One of the theories that I've propounded is that sex, the actual act, oftentimes, in fact, I talked about it in the last installment that I did, that if you're going to have sex on Wednesday night, that that might actually start on Tuesday morning. You know, you're getting the kids off or whatever, and, you know, there's just a little more eye contact or body contact. And then as time goes on, there might be an extra call to each other's work or something. And then Wednesday morning, the kiss goodbye is a little bit longer or whatever. And then unspoken, just kind of the kids are getting off to bed a little sooner. It all kind of starts ramping up, sometimes a day or two ahead of time. Is that a norm among people or is it always spontaneous? I would say that's not necessarily the norm. 
Um, but that's actually the advice I give a lot of people, right? A lot of people have this tendency to think that scheduling sex makes it unsexy, right? If you know that sex is going to happen on Wednesday night, like it's, it's boring, it's predictable. But the truth of the matter is that you can build up the anticipation and make that process sexy and do exactly the things that you're talking about. Maybe you're also sending, you know, sexy text messages here and there as well. It's just, and maybe it starts before Tuesday, you know, it, it's yeah. something that, that you can build up over time. And, and that works for a lot of couples, especially couples where there's a desire discrepancy where one partner wants more sex than the other scheduling it this way and sort of building up the anticipation for it actually helps to resolve problems for a lot of these couples. Is there a particular seduction procedure seduction language, seduction currency, or whatever that women respond to in this day and time more than some other? We always talk about pickup lines or whatever, but <laughs> once you're in a relationship, is there something that is a better way to approach it than another? Mm -hmm. Well, one funny side story about pickup lines. I've actually seen some research looking at which pickup lines work and which ones don't. And it oh, turns yeah. out that... <laughs> we got to tell our listeners this. <laughs> so it, it's kind of surprising, but it turns out that the lines that both men and women rate as being most effective and most successful are just the, hi, how are you? It's the very basic stuff. And when people start to use pickup lines where they're, you know, using these these corny, cheesy things, the the what's your sign, the, um, <laughs> uh, you know, also the, the, the sort of nagging approach where, you know, some guys do this, where they try to lower a woman's self-esteem right. relative to theirs, thinking that that's going to, you know, make her more likely to say yes. The, the reality is that those things don't work. They're universally rated as, as being very poor pickup lines. And it's just the simple approach, just the, the high hello showing interest, and then also a compliment, saying something nice about the other person. And I think that that, that compliment approach also works when we're getting back to the ongoing relationships. It's, you know, making sure that you're always validating your partner when you're starting these conversations about sex and saying, everything is great. I find you really attractive. We have this exciting sex life. What if we tried this? And, and you know, maybe this would be something that we'd both like and enjoy. What's your advice on couples that have kids in the house? My experience has been it's usually the woman who really wants privacy assured. Some parents really feel like they have to not be in the same county as their kids. Mm -hmm. I guess this goes back to the primal scene and Freud and all of that. What's your advice to parents carving out that private time when they might live in a 1,200-square-foot house with three kids? Right. I think the first part is to relax and say, you know, if your kids find out that you're having sex, that's not going to ruin them or break them, right? If you're worried about them walking in on you, get a good lock to put on the door, yeah. right? There are ways of countering that. Um, I, I think the other part is, well, if you're really, really concerned about this and you're, you absolutely can't do it while your kids are in the house, are there other times of day that you and your partner could say, meet over lunch at home uh, and have a you know mid-afternoon sort of encounter. There are lots of ways around this. For those with more financial means, it's hiring a sitter and having date nights. It's just figuring out something that works where you can still have that sexual relationship and not letting kids end it. Right. You talk in your book about the largest survey ever. Were there surprises in there for you? And what were they? Because you've taught this, you've studied it, which means you've discussed this with 
group after group after group. So everything has been on the table. Were there things that jumped out at you? Were there surprises? And what were they? Well, I should say that as a sex researcher, very little surprises me anymore. (laughs) But uh, some of the things that I thought were really interesting were first that men and women actually had a lot in common. When it came to their sexual fantasies, you know, we have these stereotypes about what men want and what women want. And, you know, yes, on average, there are some differences. But for the most part, things that men are fantasizing about are the same things that women are fantasizing about and vice versa. And that's ultimately good news because it means that we're going to have a lot in common when it comes to, you know, starting these conversations about fantasies and desires. Another thing that I thought was really interesting was that age piece that we talked about. Almost all the research on sexual fantasies has been based on college students. And if we want to understand human sexuality, we can't just study 18 to 22 year olds. We need to look at people across the lifespan. And I surveyed people between the ages of 18 and 87. And it shows us that our fantasies and desires evolve considerably over time. And we need to pay more attention to that. For example, some couples watch pornography together and the couples who watch it together are actually more sexually satisfied because they're using pornography as a way of adding some novelty and excitement into their relationship. So I think what that suggests is that maybe we should stop thinking about pornography as this sort of private, shameful thing that people do in private, but rather thinking about are there ways that couples can use this together uh, to, to add some novelty to their relationship? Right. But do people judge that? Do they feel... Guilty sure. about it. <laughs> People feel guilty about porn. They feel guilty about their sexual fantasies, right? Really? And this is one of the biggest things that prevents people from talking about their fantasies is that they feel shame and guilt. And one of the things I asked people was for their favorite sexual fantasy of all time to estimate what percentage of the population they think also has that fantasy. And what I found was that Most people underestimated how common their fantasies were, and the rarer they thought their fantasy was, the more shame and guilt and anxiety and embarrassment they felt about it. So that's where we need to, you know, sort of normalize these sexual fantasies, help people understand they're not alone in having them. You don't need to feel shame about it and be able to have an open conversation about it. Well, how do we communicate that? It's difficult sometimes to broach the subject. We should have you on Dr. Phil and talk about the most common and maybe some of the not so common sexual fantasies just so people hear it. Yeah. Because then they'll think, okay, I thought it was just me. (laughs) I thought they were going to come get me (laughs) if I ever said this out loud. We really should talk about that. Yeah. I'm definitely open to it. We do have shows where we say, you know, this is going to be sexually explicit. And we do that if we have something that's dealing with molestation or we have something that's violence or whatever, like domestic violence, if it's going to be graphic inside the home, there's something where young children shouldn't watch. Then we put that up at the front of the show and talk about it. But we should do that. We should talk about that so people can identify that they're not weird in some way because they have that fantasy. And I think a lot of people would be surprised to learn that it's actually a very small number of fantasies that are statistically rare. Most of the things that you're fantasizing about are things that other people are fantasizing about too. And you don't have a reason to feel weird or ashamed or embarrassed about that. I think that would make people feel a lot better if they knew that. We should do that. And that's... Ultimately, my goal and with this book and with other works and writings I do is is to kind of normalize this for people so that they can have those open conversations and build happier and healthier relationships. What about, and I'm asking all the questions I think people (laughs) would ask. So, and if I don't ask some, then you tell me the ones I should have asked that I didn't. How common is it for people to take pictures during sex or set up a video camera 
and shoot what they're doing? And then once they do, do they ever look at it? <laughs> so I can't think of any studies that would have, you know, would sort of give us a data point on exactly how common that behavior is. I know that it is common. Uh, you know, I asked people whether they've ever fantasized about, you know, videotaping or filming themselves during sex. And yeah, that is a very common sexual fantasy. A lot of people are turned on by that. Some people record themselves and then they watch that as a form of pornography, right? And instead of watching traditional porn, they find it much hotter to, to watch themselves or their partner. Um, now, certainly there are risks when it comes to, you know, filming yourself during sex where how do you maintain control over who has access to that information? So, you know, you have to balance the excitement factor that comes from that with the potential risks of that information being shared. Yeah, particularly in this day and time when you can hack just about anything. And there are people that go to Vegas and check into these rooms with mirrors on the ceiling and stuff. Not me. I don't even want a shiny floor in my bathroom. <laughs> Seriously, I don't even want glossy marble in my bathroom. It's like, no, no, thank you. Let alone like mirrors over my bed. No. But do they like that? Do they like mirrors in the room and that sort of thing? Is sure. that a common? Yeah. And, you know, that's something that for some people is very arousing, but for others, uh... For people who might be more body conscious or um, easily distracted, you know, that might not be a good addition to the bedroom. Yeah, yeah I videotaped myself playing tennis one time and I never did that again. <laughs> I thought, oh God, I thought it was pretty smooth till I shot myself playing tennis. Some people also, you know, they watch it as a way of thinking, well, how can I get better at this, right? Yeah. And so it's, you know, there are different ways that you could use that potentially. Yeah. Do couples ever fantasize about their own partner? During sex, is that one of the fantasies? So this is going to surprise people. I asked people who appears in their sexual fantasies. And the one person who's more likely to appear in your fantasies than anyone else is your current romantic partner. Really? If you're in a relationship. If you're single, it's actually an ex-partner. Really? We have this tendency to think that, you know, oh, we're always thinking about celebrities and the rich and famous and, you know, these unattainable people. But the reality is that more often than not, we're fantasizing about our partners, which I think should be reassuring and comforting to a lot of people. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. Now, that's not to say that it's a bad thing if you fantasize about other people, right? Just because somebody has a fantasy about someone who isn't their partner doesn't mean that they're unhappy. It doesn't mean they're not attracted to their partner. So if you have fantasies about other people, that's that's okay. Okay. Well, why wouldn't that offend a partner? Let's say a guy's having a sexual encounter with his wife and he's fantasizing about Marilyn Monroe, for example. Mm -hmm. I'm choosing somebody that's no longer around because I know a lot of people. <laughs> I don't want to say somebody that's alive. So say they're fantasizing about Marilyn Monroe. Why would that not offend the wife? Like, I don't satisfy you intellectually, figuratively, so you got to think about somebody else? Well, so some people are offended when they find out that their partner fantasizes about other people. Some people consider that to be a form of cheating. Some people think that if their partner's watching porn, even if, you know, they're watching porn while they're masturbating, they consider that to be a form of cheating. So this is something where different people look at it in different ways. But I think the important thing for people to, to learn, recognize, and understand is that human beings are wired for novelty, right? Uh, there's something that psychologists call the Coolidge effect, which refers to the idea that 
over time, we experience less arousal in response to the same sexual stimulus. So for example, if somebody watches the same porn clip every day for a week, they're going to become less aroused each time they watch it. But you show them a new clip with new actors, arousal goes back up. And so that's where these fantasies about other people come in, is that it's just a way of interjecting some novelty. Right. You brought up masturbation. What is the frequency of masturbation between men and women? And are there differences between age groups? So men definitely do it more often than women, uh, but the majority of both men and women do it. Uh, and it's something that that changes over time. Uh, men tend to start it at a younger age than women do, and older men are more likely to do it, you know, than, than older women. So, so there's sort of this persistent gender difference over time. Um, Masturbation is also very often present in relationships, and we shouldn't view masturbation as a sub as you know necessarily being a sign that there's something wrong in the sex life. It's okay if your partner masturbates or engages in self pleasure. For most people, masturbation is a complement to an active sex life rather than a substitute. Yeah. So a partner shouldn't think, well, they'd rather do that than be with me. Yeah, don't take it personally. It's not yeah. about you, right? Uh, and and it's okay if your partner just sometimes just wants to masturbate instead of having sex because there could be all kinds of reasons why maybe they don't feel like a partnered encounter right then. It doesn't necessarily reflect on you or say there's anything wrong with the relationship. I think we need to not take partners' self-pleasure so so personally. Yeah. I've talked a lot about ourselves and in our marriages. Let's talk about the kids for a minute. When I was growing up, there were three channels, ABC, NBC, and CBS. There was a lot of censorship. I grew up still waiting for Matt Dillon to kiss Kitty. Still hasn't <laughs> happened. I mean, Desi and Lucy went to bed. They were dressed in snowsuits. They slept in twin beds. That's what I grew up looking at. Now, on network television, the sexually provocative comments, one-liners in sitcoms, just what is visually shown probably would have been considered pornography in the 50s and 60s. But now they're exposed to all this and they're like two clicks away from nudity on the Internet. Is it causing kids to have sex earlier? And if so, what's the impact? So this is something I hear all the time. And, and we see, you know, stories in the media here and there about you know, fifth graders caught having sex at school or, you know, very young kids sexting, you know, sending naked photos and other things like that. The truth of the matter is that that's actually not common. And if you look at average age of first sexual intercourse, it's been very stable over the last couple of decades. It's 16 to 17. Really? Uh, so kids are not on average having sex at a younger and younger age. Uh, and actually, if you look at the data, kids today are having less sex than in generations past. So all this that we hear about college hookup culture and uh, so forth, the the reality of it, the data is very different from that that sort of media narrative we hear about, you know, college students are hooking up all the time. No, they're actually having less sex with fewer partners than they were uh, a couple of generations ago. And teenage pregnancy levels are going down. They correct? are. Yeah. Is that because they're having less sex or more birth control? So it, it, those are both 
potential explanations there. So teen birth rate is actually at a record low. Um, the teen abortion rate is going down. All of these things are decreasing. Part of it is due to greater access to contraceptives, but the other part is just there's less sex happening too. I did see a study, and I can't cite it, so I'll just say middle school and early high school kids having sex and having no consideration or comment for sexually transmitted diseases. Yep. They were completely ignoring that aspect of it. Yep. Which is pretty dangerous when you think about it. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it highlights a lot of the flaws in our sex education system. I mean, to call it a sex education system is kind of a, a stretch because we don't do a good job in this country of teaching adolescents about sexuality at all. Based on the research and the data, at what point do you think a parent should give a child contraception? Give a child contraception? Yeah, make um, it available to them. Take them to the OBGYN or give them condoms or whatever. Because my attitude has always been, look, if it's come into your awareness that they're very likely sexually active or getting ready to be sexually active, you're not going to be able to stop that. No, and the more you tell them not to do it, the more likely it is Absolutely. that they're probably going to go so do it. My attitude is prepare them and give them contraceptives. Take them to the doctor, give them condoms or whatever, instead of being in denial and they wind up pregnant. So I guess the way I tend to think about it is that there's a lot of steps that would occur before that. And it starts with, at a very young age, just sort of normalizing sex in the human body. And it's teaching kids the appropriate anatomical names for their genitalia. It's creating an open dialogue where they feel like they can come ask you questions. So, you know, ideally, they're going to be coming to you and asking you the questions before you're, you know, approaching them with, let's say, condoms or contraceptives. Hopefully, they'll have the knowledge at that point to, you know, be able to ask for what they need in order to protect themselves. Yeah, I remember I thought it was time to have the birds and bees talk with one of my sons. I sat down and said, you know, it's time to talk about that. And he said, sure, what do you want to know? And I thought, okay, yeah, great. Maybe I'm a little, let me run a little late on this. <laughs> but if a mother believes that her daughter is sexually active, the responsible thing to me seems, of course, it would be great to have had the conversations with the daughter leading up to this to where she values herself enough that she will not let some boy use her body as a playground to entertain himself with and leave her with a 20-year obligation of a child. Mm -hmm. If that hasn't happened, and there is a young lady, particularly if the father is absent from the home and she's particularly vulnerable to male attention and validation and is headed headlong into a relationship that she knows is very likely to get sexual in a fast hurry, a lot of mothers will say, I'm encouraging her or validating sexual interaction if I put her on birth control. And there's an argument to be made for that. But my belief is you're not going to stop her when she's in the back seat of a car with her boyfriend. Your best route of action is to keep her from getting in that back seat to begin with. But once she's there, it's too late. Yeah. So I think the responsible thing to do is to protect them. 
avoidance is best, protection is second. And a lot of mothers think they're encouraging. What do you say to them? So there are a lot of people who believe that if you give a teenager, you know, tools to protect themselves against ASTDs, that it's going to give them uh, a license to be promiscuous and that they're going to have a lot more sex. And we've seen this a lot, for example, in discussions about the HPV vaccine recently, right? Right. HPV, the human papillomavirus is the most common sexually transmitted infection, but we have a vaccine now that um, can protect against the most dangerous strains of that virus that prevented from turning into cervical cancer or or other sorts of cancers that protect against genital warts. And there's a lot of people who have argued that, well, if you give teens this, this vaccine, that's going to lead them to be more promiscuous. What the data show is that they're not. They're not any more likely uh, to, to have more partners or more sex. And so providing teens with these tools, just along the lines of what you were saying, is not necessarily going to make them engage in riskier behaviors, if anything, it will make it more likely that they have safer sex if and when they do have sex. I couldn't agree more, and I couldn't say it as well as you did, but I agree with you completely. Well, my guest has been Justin Miller, and he has written the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. I think one thing that we've established is there's nothing but good that can come out of communicating with your partner about your sexual desires, inquiring about their sexual desires, and talking about this in a way that is non-threatening, and doing it in a way where you validate your partner, compliment your partner, and help them to feel safe and secure rather than being critical, right? Absolutely. Hopefully, we've answered some things here, and this book is really, really helpful and talks about some ways to do some of the things, and will tell you that you're not some kind of weirdo pervert if you're thinking some of the things that you may think are weirdo pervert. So I highly, highly recommend that you read the book. And we're going to put a link on our website to the blog that the doctor writes so you can find him and know what is there and a link where you can get to the book on Amazon and other places where you can find it. And I really would like you to come back and talk about what we said on these fantasies if we can get you to do that sometime. I'd love to. All right. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Okay. So long. 